The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. You must have had one of those days where you wake up and you say, what don't they understand about my business? The world's complex. Nothing is easy. Why are all these people picking on me? Well, to answer those questions and help us understand what the problem is, Bill Coletti. Bill, welcome to the show. Joel, great to be here. Looking forward to talking about that. So I'll tell you something. Uh, who hasn't had a day when they wake up and they say, uh, why are they picking on me? And we're talking, of course, not about inside people. We're talking about the outside world, the uh, whoever the outside world is that doesn't like something about you, your business, uh, whatever it is you're doing, it's impacting them, especially the world we live in now is especially uh, complex. And you know, one sentence can be taken out of context in uh, any form of media, and it's very problematic. So uh, tell us exactly what it is you do and uh, how you help companies. So we work with companies when the public's expectation and the company's strategy gets misaligned. So a company wants to do something, do something in a particular way, grow a particular market, but the public, public represented broadly defined by regulators or social media chitter chatter or employees, whoever the public is, it gets misaligned with that strategy. And there comes public criticism, public critique, usually represented by the media. So we work with companies that find themselves into crisis situations and we help them navigate and get back on strategy as quickly as possible. So that sounds kind of like a weird, uh, weird definition to me that, uh, you know, when the strategy gets misaligned, I mean, companies get called out for doing things that are wrong or bad, uh, not when their strategy gets misaligned. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I, I just would like you to clarify because that isn't normally my perception. Yeah. So I think there's three kinds of, of risk. There's three kinds of risk that we look at. So we look at strategic risk, things that companies intended to do for superior economic value. There's preventable risks, things that should not happen. There should not be metal shavings and hamburger patties. And then there's external risk, things that happen outside of my control. An active shooter shows up on my campus or there's some sort of major data breach. It's an external outside of my control that I couldn't, I can't manage it. Strategic risk are things that a company meant to do. There, there is a procedure, a policy, um, a decision that a company has made, and the public has a set of expectations or misunderstanding 
about what the company did. So that's how you manage a strategic risk. I meant give, to give do us, this. What, what's, what's an example? Sure. I've just, sort of I, yeah, I've decided I'm a, I'm a university and I've decided to end my nursing program. I made a strategic decision. I made a decision, but the expectation of the community, healthcare uh, employers, the expectation of your students and your alumni, your decision is now out of whack with their expectations. So your strategy yeah. is now out of whack with their expectations. Preventable, same context. Preventable means, like I said, you know, metal shavings in hamburger patties. There was something that happened that shouldn't have happened. And so your execution got misaligned with the public's expectation. You and I, as consumers of fine hamburgers, do not want metal shavings in our burgers. And we well, have a pretty high bar for that. Yeah. I mean, let, let's, let's, uh, let's separate these two things. These are wildly different things. I mean, one sure. of them is really terrible. One of them is a business decision that is, is the sole or purview of the school to make, whether the people like it or not in the community. I'm not saying they should be rude to those people. They should ignore those people. But certainly it's it's in their purview to make that decision if they want to. The second one, the shavings and the hamburger, that, that is inexcusable under any circumstance. And that is uh, that's terrible. I understand, so, but, but look at a headline in a newspaper. What gets written about? They both get written about. Yeah, they no, both, no. But they, both, they both, both get criticized. Do. Yeah, both of them do. So, so how do you, uh, what are the steps? If, if, if one of our listeners was to get caught up in this tornado uh, and the media is, is you know, all over them for doing something that the public doesn't like, whatever that thing is. And I don't even know what some of this stuff uh, makes it reportable, to tell you the truth, by the media. That, that's a whole other discussion. Sure. Uh, and I spent some years in the media business, so mm -hmm. uh, that makes confuses me even more. But let's just say that, uh, you know, they decide to close the nursing program, like you're saying. What are the steps? What's the first thing that the CEO does uh, when he or she wakes up in the morning and sees the newspaper or, or a headline on their phone uh, saying uh, this, these terrible people, look what they just did. Yeah. So, and that's the reason we, we go out, out of our way to label the risk. And we think it's important that you got to be able to understand, did we do this strategically preventable or external? In that situation you're talking about right there, we must, the thing you need to do is that if you're being criticized for it, the first thing to do is not reverse course, apologize and say, well, no, we didn't mean to do that. It's that you did a poor job at the outset of explaining this to the people that matter most to you in your community. And that the reporter isn't just trolling around looking for something to write. There usually has to be cause and effect. There has to be upset students, upset parents, upset alumni. But if you go backwards into the process and say, we're going to close our nursing campus or our nursing program next year, there should be a year's worth of work that goes into that, six months worth of work that goes into that, so that you've made sure that the public, those that matter most to you, you make sure that they're aware of what's going on. So the first thing you need to do is decide what kind of risk are you in? What is this situation that's going on? If it's something I meant to do, can I try to re-explain it because I don't want to unring the bell. I want to close that factory. I want to eliminate that shift. I want to be non-union. I want to close the nursing program. Whatever the example is, I'm doing it for a reason. I should have thought in advance. Smart people sat around the table to decide it. I should have done some work in advance to make sure that the stakeholders, people that matter to me, understand why I'm doing it. And if I can't placate them, I can at least inform them. 
When companies do things dramatic, strategic change without informing stakeholders, they should be prepared for people to have criticisms. And so the first thing that the leader should do in this situation is try to find people that are supportive and say, no, this is the right decision. This is good for our community, good for our company, good for our, our whatever. Too often, we just make decisions in a leadership vacuum and we don't think about the public and we don't think about the context of why we're making these decisions. You know, uh, let's say you got five or 10 people sitting around the board table making this decision mm -hmm. a year before, before mm -hmm. it's ever announced or whatever, you know, a long time uh, before. Who at that table owns the responsibility of communication of this to the marketplace? I mean, so everybody, the financial people, the legal people, everybody contributes their opinion about what the answer is. Uh, there's a vote or there's a decision that gets made somehow. Who then crafts the strategy to let the world know so that you don't end up in a world of hurt uh, and, and having to call you? This is all falls under the preventative part. We're going to get into the now that now the crater, you know, the, the bomb has gone off, but but we'll get back to that in a second. Yeah. So we're talking right now about preventing this kind of problem. So who owns the responsibility? What kinds of skills? Yeah. Um, so typically it's corporate communications. Some uh, the titles in major corporations are, you know, chief communications officer, chief reputation officer, maybe chief marketing officer. Um, but very often it, it needs to be the skill set of a CEO. I think the demands, the external demands on CEOs are greater than they've ever been. And so just being a good operator, being a good, efficient, whatever you do is not sufficient. You need to be a communicator. So it lives somewhere between the CEO personally themselves or somebody with some sort of external communications, external role. And I listed off some of those titles. Wait, 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 wait a second here. Is this the kind of thing that a CEO... Uh, learns in school, they, they take classes for this, or is this trial by fire that, that you don't know how to do this until you're uh, faced with this? I mean, where, yeah. where does these skills come from? The crucible of crisis doesn't develop your skills, it reveals them. All right, <laughs> so I firmly believe that, okay? So Tony Hayward, if you're familiar with that name, Tony Hayward, CEO of BP during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico some years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago, yeah. Yeah, Tony Hayward said, I would much rather be sailing on the Thames River in London than dealing with this situation. So his leadership, his ability to lead got demonstrated. And you would think a guy that was the CEO of BP would, would not say something like that. Yeah, so, I, I could. That that would be very inflammatory. That that really uh, belittles the the crisis, doesn't it? And he did, but it, but it, um, that's that's not that's the quote. That's not that's so he no, said. I, it. I, I get it. I get it. And so it is. It is learned by understanding kind of where we started, Joel. It's by understanding that the public, as much as we don't like it, or the media, as much as we hate it, have a say in the execution of our strategy. We don't want government regulation and we're all good capitalists and entrepreneurs, but there are people outside of our sphere of influence that have a say in what we do and how we run our businesses, particularly when we get to scale, when we get, when we get large, publicly traded, obviously, a lot of regulatory you know, oversight, the industries you've been involved in, tons of regulatory yeah. oversight. And so those people have say in our strategy. It's not just me and my lumberyard pricing two by fours however I want to. There are, there's a stake. That's where reputation comes in. So I think CEOs learn this by thinking about it 
acknowledging that it's real and acknowledging that those opinions of those outsiders, those external people, that they actually do have impact. And it's not just about my P&L and revenue and expenses. You know, uh, let's go back to that quote about uh, I'd rather be sailing on the Thames, you know, that yeah. was 10 or 11 years ago, whatever it was. Uh, you know, uh, it seems like more and more these days, people are blurting out things that they don't mean, that they wish they didn't say, they get recorded, they go viral, everybody in the world finds out about it uh, because everybody's a news reporter nowadays. Everybody's got a, a TV camera in their pocket, you know, that they can broadcast their materials. Um, are people saying more dumb stuff now or are we just hearing more stuff now? We're, we're just hearing more stuff. I'm convinced, <laughs> I'm convinced the human nature has not changed dramatically in 20 years, if that's the arc we're talking about. I don't think human nature has changed that much. Dudes have said stupid stuff since cavemen. <laughs> I'm sure that we've said stupid stuff. <laughs> so even there were even stupid cavemen back then, huh? I'm sure that the CEO of Cave Incorporated said dumb things. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say it. I think you're probably right. Um, yeah. So do you have any tips for helping people not say dumb stuff? Yeah, just think, you know, think before you speak, but also, and this gets a nuanced complexity to it. All right. So let's just take you, Joel. You've built such an amazing reputation with the podcast and, and with the businesses that you've built. And you've done that by doing certain things over and over again. You've always lived to your word. You've, you've committed to your deals. You've, you've under-promised, over-delivered, whatever, whatever that mix is. You've always done that. And so if you were to blurt out something for those people that knew you, they would say, oh, man, that's not the Joel I know. That, that's, that's not the guy I know. You would get the benefit of the doubt. Okay, because people have formed an opinion of you over time as being a good business leader, thoughtful, you know, smart, get things done, whatever those traits are that people value in you. BP, before Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf, had an oil spill in Norway and was a joint venture partner of Exxon in Alaska. And so, yeah, of course, BP would screw things up. That's exactly what I expect from them. Mark Zuckerberg we find out there's another layer of an another absence of privacy at Facebook. You and I are both going to say, "Oh yeah, I totally expect that." Well, that's part of that's part of how the media works, though. Yeah. Is you know, don't you remember? Uh, you know, like in the early '90s when uh, Bill Clinton was running against the the first George Bush, and, yep. and they said that uh, uh, Bill Clinton smoked dope, and yep. and then I think Bill Clinton said, "Well, yeah, but uh, so did George Bush." And, and the whole country, it's like they looked at George Bush and they go, is that believable? Nah, no chance exactly. of that happening. Sure. You know, but Bill Clinton, everybody, go, everybody thought, well, of course the guy did. You know, I mean, look how old, look at his age, look at look at who he is. I mean, of course he did. You know, that's what everybody did. And, right. but, but, you know, so the believability thing, the media plays on that. And they're, they're expert at that. Absolutely. And so Starbucks, Starbucks got in trouble here recently, two or three times for some store managers that did some racist things. You know, they, they kicked out African-Americans because yeah, yeah. they were gathering. Yeah. I don't believe Starbucks is a racist company. I don't think that's in their DNA. Walmart, I have a perception about Walmart that's different because I get to work with them. But there's a general perception about Walmart that they don't treat their employees very well. They spend a lot of fossil fuels and they buy crappy products from China. That's not true. None of one of those, in, in, none of those three statements that I just made are true, but people have that perception of that. So the way we get to it is a think before you speak. It's one thing to be authentic and cavalier, and both you and I have the ability to talk and say quippy things really fast. 
But in the back of our mind, there, there are filters in our mind of what we know we can and cannot say because we're pretty smart, public-facing people. So CEOs, A, need to understand that. But B, you need to build a reservoir of goodwill so that if and when these bad things happen, which they do inevitably happen, you want to get the benefit of the doubt for someone to say, hey, that's not the company I know. Facebook's got a long way to go. Warren Buffett doesn't get that. Warren Buffett gets the benefit of the doubt. If something didn't go down yeah. because he's got a legacy and he's, he's, he's a, gentle, a reputation. He's a gentleman. He's a gentleman yeah. You know, I mean, he's, President Trump uh, was mean to everyone. Right. I mean, and it, never got the benefit of the doubt. Well, he didn't deserve it. I mean, he, uh, you know, he sure. didn't earn it. I mean, so now, you but know, he cured, but he could have cured cancer or he could have solved hunger in Africa. Any number of goals could have solved global warming if he acknowledged that it was real. And it would have never been given the credit because of exactly what you just said. Yeah. Nobody would give him the credit. It's kind of an, an unfortunate thing. But uh, let's say uh, I will tell you that uh, this whole concept of uh, not blurting stuff out, I can't tell you that I'm perfect at it. But uh, I learned very early when I brought my company and sold it to a Fortune 500 company and I stayed in, I was inside there, uh, you know, for a while. One of the senior executives, uh, president of one of their divisions, uh, we were we, we were became very very close friends. We'd fly together. We were going on appointments all the time. And one of the things the guy said to me, I was very young, maybe twenty seven, and he said, you know, you just keep an eye on your knee jerk. And he told me that it, it was one of the most important things anyone ever told me. And ever since, I just have tried to count to three, you know, because you know you never know what another person's ears are hearing. I mean, everybody's ears are different. We all hear different things. We all notice different things. And it was, it was very, very important to me. And I'll tell you, in the world that we live in now, it's maybe a more important lesson than even what I learned then. But Joel, do you feel like that stifled your creativity? Did that stifle you as a leader? Did it no. compromise you in any way? No. Uh, in, fact, in fact, I think the opposite. Yeah. Because uh, if people, if you're blurting out dumb stuff, then people won't follow you. <laughs> I mean, to me, I think it made me a better leader because it made me more sensitive to the to the ears and to the needs of the people who were, you know, part of my tribe that are part of my group, whoever those people are. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think it, it helped me to realize, you know, the, not everybody sees the world the way I see it. And knowing that, uh, and, and by the way, and it's become even more uh, apparent nowadays in, in the recent uh, last uh, year or two. But, you know, we all see the world in a different way. Uh, we all have blinders on about certain kinds of things, and we all need to be a little bit open-minded about the fact that maybe there are other ways of looking at the world. And, you know, and, and so um, that, I, I think it was a very important lesson and made me better, not worse. Yeah. And I mean, and, I, and I'm sure you do. I'm sure you thank that person. I think you just thank, oh. you thanked him right now. I mean, that's amazing. Listen, we're, we're friends 25, 30 years later. Yeah, and that's so. awesome. And we all need that. And we all need that in our life. We need people like that. But the other context to think about that is so... Some years ago, there was a tragic mine disaster in West Virginia. 29 people died underground. I flew in 72 hours after it, sat with the CEO and was counseling him through this. He was the exact opposite of what you just described. He had a double knee jerk. And anytime he could get both of his both of his knees flinging, he would he got off on that. And that was his leadership style was shoot from the hip, speak the truth. And that was his brand. For me to come in and try to dial him back in this tragedy and then the aftermath of government regulation would have been an absolute mistake. So what we decided is that the general public was not the audience of concern. 
miners, his employees, and his investors is who we were talking to. So we got blasted by the mainstream media, where the first question you asked me, we got blasted by, by, by ABC, NBC, CNN, you name it, but we didn't care because we were speaking truth to those that understood our business. And that's all that mattered to us. So, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, you know, and pain is, is in the, you know, pain is felt by those of us individually. But if I decide that doesn't hurt, then it doesn't really matter. And that's a strategic but, decision. Listen, as a, as a, as a media professional yourself, uh, was that the right move? I know that that's, he wanted to speak to those people, but if you don't play a little bit to the general public, then Congress starts making laws and they start re-regulating things. I mean, all sorts of things can go against you. I mean, so you may have been talked into that position, but do you think that was the right position? No, absolutely not. I mean, six months later, I got hired by the board to fire him and walk him out. So no, obviously not. And the and the huge publicly traded company got bought for pennies on the share uh, by another coal mining operation. So no, at that time, we were not going to make that sow zero silk purse. And we had to make a, a strategic decision because we had to say something. So the answer is no and no, no long-term and no short-term, but it was the it was the strategy that I signed off on because it was our best strategy with very, very given, poor given options. Given the chess pieces that were on the on the Very table. poor, very, very poor options that we had to yeah. choose from. Yeah. Correct. So let's yeah. talk about another uh, thing here. And, you know, as we go on for a long time about this, because this is a really interesting discussion. I love this. Um, and I love it because it's real. It really happens. Every one of us has been in a crisis. Let's say you're in a, you're in a crisis. And some really terrible thing happens. And, and every single day in the news, we could make up a story because every single day something terrible happens. But the attorneys jump in and say, don't say anything. Yeah. Don't say, you know. So you've got this, uh, you know, uh, this thing where, like, let's say somebody uh, is killed by, in an accident or something. Whatever. You, you know, you want to apologize, but the attorneys don't want you to apologize because that looks bad later on. I mean, what's the right thing to do? How do you balance uh, being a decent human being? And doing what you know is the right thing and listening to the attorneys because there's a whole situation that's going to unfold later that they're responsible for. That, that's so a tough, that's a tough such one, an right? Awesome, such an awesome question. Just it's it's on point. It's great. So I've spent a lot of time on that question. All right, because that because I got that pushback a ton, okay, in, in my career. And so in real black and white, you can't say you killed somebody, you can't apologize, the general counsel says. Okay, so it's real. However, it is less real today than it was five years ago and even doubly less than it was 10 years ago. So I see it changing. And I have quizzed both inside and outside attorneys at, at firms that think about reputation. And it is, it is not as bad as my old tapes and, and your tapes. It's not as bad as we, as we think it is um, today. Now, we still get that pushback, but there are more and more general counsels. There are more and more outside counsel litigators because everybody's concerned about protecting the CEO in a deposition is fundamentally what they're concerned about, is that that is real pushback. I push back very hard and say, give me an example of where in a deposition someone got beat up for apologizing. And most litigators that are like average litigators have never had that experience. They've heard about it. They've heard the urban myth that you and I keep repeating right now. But if you ask general counsels and you ask litigators that defend people in depositions, does this happen? 
They say, no, I would much rather be in a posture where Mr. Smith on the day of the event did apologize. Now let's get back to the, the premise of your, of the premise of your complaint. So a lot in what you said is true. A lot in what you said is changing and it is changing at the top companies and, and litigators and, and, that are and, really and, fighting these fights. And why is it changing? Is it changing because it's not really a real thing and, and they're afraid of nothing or and it's because of reputation. It's because people get that reputation matters. People get my affect, my belief that CEO Joel wouldn't do that. He's the kind of guy that would apologize. And I'm really surprised he didn't because people want to know that companies care. You know, Mitt Romney got in a bunch of trouble for saying companies don't have a, don't have a soul or something to that effect. People have higher, this generation, millennials and beyond have higher and greater expectations of companies. It's where we talk about social justice. That's why all summer we were all up and bother about, you know, all the social justice issues that were critically important. It's because there is a changing evolution of the public's expectation of companies to actually care and actually act a little bit more humanely and that it's not simply about shareholder return, that there's yeah, you know, a higher expectation. I'll tell you personally, I, I, uh, I can't see how a single person in this country could say that they don't want everybody to be treated uh, fairly, reasonably, humanely. Now, we may have different levels of, of activism about, about that and helping and how we're going to help make it happen. But mm -hmm. uh, it's not in anyone's interest for anyone to be kept down, be put down or, or anything like that. But, you know, but I, I think that to your point about these millennial guys and and young women, I think that uh, they're expecting some humanity. I mean, I mean, they they want the world. The, the world has become kind of a kinder and gentler place, and they're expecting that. They're expecting that from leadership. And I just, you know, to close out the attorney thing. I just can't imagine how it could work for anybody to not be decent. Yeah, I think that it would look good to a judge. I think it would look good to a jury. Look, you know, whether it's our fault or not. I feel badly for your family that something happened. I don't have to be responsible for what happened. I'm just saying I feel badly that this happened and we're going to get to the bottom of it. And we're going to figure out what happened. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think, I think people respond positively to that. And it's good to hear that the attorneys are kind of backing down a little bit. They are, they are. And it's, you know, and, and it's, and it's not just my opinion. So I was on a panel of higher education university, big, big state university general counsels. It was me and seven general counsels. And we were talking about exactly about this, about apologizing and, you know, incidents or accidents on campus or, you know, sexual harassment in the locker room, all, all kinds of different issues that we were talking about. And they were like, yeah, I can, I can hear my outside counsel saying we shouldn't say that, but I'm quickly going to overrule them because I know that's what my president wants to do. And higher ed is typically on the outer edge of this stuff, thinking sort of proactively because they're closer to the kids that we're talking about. So it's it's real. And I've also talked to both both plaintiffs and defense attorneys on this topic. And, you know, every plaintiff's attorney that I know would be, dear, please don't apologize. Don't apologize. Don't apologize because I'm going to stick that far up you as I can in a deposition nowadays. But the company that apologizes defense actually has an easier job. Just like I said, Mr. Smith said they were sorry and they are fixing this problem. Now let's get to the underlying premise of your claim. And that's, that is such a better, better strategy than saying, well, no, we didn't kill your husband. Of course you did. So let's, yes. let's, let's be honest about, you things. know, there's, there's a lot of research that says that um, 
when doctors make a mistake and something bad happens, that if they are nice to the patient, totally. there's almost never a lawsuit. Totally. As opposed to if they're, well, it wasn't my fault. Uh, something, there was somebody in the operating room made a mistake and it wasn't me. Uh, yeah. Almost every time that person is going to get sued and have more problems than somebody who just took responsibility and, uh, and made nice and, and kind of yeah. went on. And, and then the research before that, so it's beautiful research and that's excellent. You're, you're quoting it very, very well. There was a generation of research before that that talked even about claims, just people having claims. Pe- doctors with good bedside manner that are just nice, even if there's not an adverse outcome, is that doctors with good bedside manner that have a what I would call reputational traits, high reputational traits, get sued less, even whether even if it's frivolous or not. Okay, but the guys that have bad bedside manner, and this is from the from the eighties and nineties, that have bad bedside manner and are jerks, just get sued more, whether anything goes wrong or not. Now, lots of state legislatures have fixed those types of lawsuits and that that litigation, but it's it's all the same basket of mindset. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's people. Uh, being spiteful, wanting to get back, wanting to yeah. uh, take their anger out on uh, on somebody or something, and it's it's unfortunate. So so we got these three buckets here. We got this um, uh, preventable, we got this risk, and then we have this external. Right? We got like these three things. Um, give us a story. I mean, these are great stories because these are kinds of the this is kind of the inside that we don't all mm-hmm. see all the time. But well, what's what's some really juicy story about some really <laughs> terrible situation that? You know, you kind of helped turn around and gave somebody some really good advice. Yeah, you know, I, we I try to go out of my way not to talk about clients, so I try to do a little bit of hybrid just because you don't have you to know, put their name on it. And it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of our great work is done by keeping people out of the paper. Um, you know, so we had a Japanese company. Japanese company was had invested actually twenty five years ago in a phosphate processing plant. And phosphate is is a nasty chemical process. I don't, you know, people turn phosphate into chicken feed and fertilizer and lots of different things. And you, in order to do it, it's a pretty, you got to mix a bunch of chemicals to extract the good stuff out of phosphate. And the byproduct, the, 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 the bywash is just really horrible, horrible stuff. All right. So this Japanese company buys this company and the... American operators, the Japanese owned it, but the American operators were basically going out to the back of the plant and pouring out 50 gallon barrels of this crap and just pouring it into a stream. And and that was the mitigation plant because it was kind of marshy and soft and, and you didn't really see it when you poured it into the marsh grass area, not right behind the factory, but a couple, you know, hundred feet back there. And so it became on the brink of becoming an EPA Superfund site. So we were right on the brink of becoming an EPA Superfund site. The Japanese company's first instinct, and that's who hired me, was the owner. The Japanese company's first instinct was to say, this isn't our problem. This is the American guy's problem. You know, this is their, their names on the building. And I said, no, here's how this is going to go down. Since you're the majority shareholder, you're the feds are going to come after through the hold, through the owner company to the holding company. And all the litigation is going to be all about you and you're going to have to defend these practices. And so very, very proactively, we decided, the Japanese company decided to invest significant amount of dollars before they got in trouble, but it was pretty inevitable that they were going to get in trouble. They decided to mitigate it. So they fired the CEO, brought in a new management team, made a big strategic decision to change the operations of this facility. And so we got involved 
as the first set of newspaper stories had started coming out. And I'm really proud that we were actually able to convince. And if you know anything about Japanese decision-making and rapid is not one of the hallmarks of Japanese decision-making is that they were actually able to really make a good, smart decision. We had a long tail of litigation, needless to say. I mean, that didn't, that didn't call off the dogs, but they did the right thing. And, and I like it when companies recognize what the right thing is and do the right thing to fix it. We know a lot of times, uh, you know, there's the short run and there's the long run. In the short run, you know, there's a legal cost, there's cleanup cost. But the long run, you, you've got market cap. And a lot of these companies end up losing, uh, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars in market cap, which is 50 times more expensive than all the other stuff combined. Exactly. And, and they don't always think about that. And that's the rep, that's a reflection of their reputation. And a lot of their issues, and yeah, because um, it's not zero sum. You you are you just did, and and you have such a rich accounting background. Is that you just that's it? Company management and reputation management is not zero sum. There, there is give and take, and and both sides of the ledger. When you think about all of the complexities of this issue, it's not all just about driving revenue up and expenses down. There's a lot more sophistication to it. Well, there's because you got multipliers, and those multipliers are are really valuable. So, hey, listen, I, you have really delivered the inside track on on how this whole crisis management world works. It, it's a fascinating world. It's really uh, very difficult to get a peek behind the curtain, but you know to really understand, uh, you know, what companies should be doing to be preventable, what they need to do, you know, if they get into a situation where they're uh, where they're accused of something, or they're dealing with something, whether it's internal, external, whatever it is. Uh, these have been uh, really extraordinary uh, little uh, little nougats and tidbits, and I just I personally just really enjoyed listening to you, and I'd, I'd like to even hear more. So, uh, thank you so much for being with us and for sharing. And uh, and if you want to get a hold of Bill, you know, listen, your contact information will be in the show notes. Now that's awesome, Joel. One bit of the inside track. Even doesn't matter what size company you are. Read the newspaper, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. Ask your team, what if that had happened to us? What would we do? It's the simplest, easiest thing that a company can do. You don't need to invest in me. You don't need to invest in a strategy session. Just say, if that had happened to me, are we ready for that? One last question. If if a CEO finds uh, themselves in some trouble, uh, Mm -hmm. do they call the regular PR firm and then refers them to a specialist or how does that tend to work? You know, most global PR firms, I mean, that's where I was for a long time. Most big global PR firms have a crisis practice. Um, my referral sources is, is attorneys uh, and, and folks that, that sort of get the first, first phone call are typically attorneys. And then we get the second phone call. But yeah, most big global PR firms would have that. Heck, McKenzie, Deloitte, both have crisis firms or crisis I mean, What about, what about the medium-sized ones? Because a lot of our listeners yeah. will probably call the medium-sized. They, they will, in, in sadly they will have people that say they do crisis, but their pattern recognition and experience and, you know, sitting at the big boy table is usually less. So this, so this opens one last really important set of questions. How do you know if you're playing ball with somebody who's really good at this? Because it's it, like a lot of things in professional services, you don't find out until it's too late. Referrals and recommendations. I think that's the best thing. And then give me some, give me demonstrable evidence of success with a similar, similar incident to mine. I mean, that's good People that are vetting me—that's a really good question to ask. Okay. Well, let me let me just let me just tell you something. If uh, if I ever find myself in trouble, I'm calling you. So, Joel, thank I you would very be honored. Much. You would be easy to work with because you're actually sincere, transparent, honest, and smart, which is a very very wonderful mix. So, I'd be well, I'd be honored to do something with you. Listen, Bill, thank you very much. Pleasure to have you on the show. Cheers. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Audavita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audavita.com. That's A U D I V I T A.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.